0: Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast, the podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. On tonight's episode, We're going to listen to Camp and Trail by Stuart Edward White. For those that are new to the Boy to Sleep podcast, welcome. The podcast is designed for you to listen to as you go to sleep. I'll read you a bedtime story that will play in the background as a distraction and help you fall asleep. I love bringing out episodes to the listeners... Because it helps people get a good night's rest everywhere. The show is also free of charge. The only cost is that I ask you to please leave a comment... And a rating in the podcast app... As it helps me to grow the show... And help more people get a good night's rest. In the meantime sit back or lie back, and enjoy the show. Camp and Trail by Stuart Edward White Garden City, New York Doubleday, Page and Company, 1911 Preface After considerable weighing of the pros and cons, I have decided to include the names of firms where certain supplies may be bought. I realise that this sort of free advertisement is eminently unjust to other worthy houses handling the same lines of goods, but the case is one of self-defence. In the forest, I rashly offered to send to inquirers the name of the firm making a certain kind of tent. At this writing, I have received and answered over 1,100 inquiries. Since the publication of these papers in the outing magazine, I have received hundreds of requests for information as to where this, that, or the other thing may be had. I have tried to answer them all, but to do so has been a tax on time I would not care to repeat. Therefore, I shall try in the following pages to give the reader all of the practical information I possess, even though, as stated... I may seem unduly to advertise the certain few business houses with which I have had satisfactory dealings. It is needless to remark that I am interested in none of these firms and have no especial favours from them. Chapter 1 The Wilderness Traveller Many people have asked me what all things considered is the most valuable quality a wilderness traveler can possess always I have replied unhesitatingly for no matter how useful or desirable such attributes as patience courage strength endurance good nature and ingenuity may prove to be Undoubtedly a man with them, but without the sense of direction, is practically helpless in the wilds. A sense of direction, therefore, I should name as the prime requisite for him who would have become a true woodsman, depending on himself rather than on guides. The faculty is largely developed, of course, by much practice but it must be inborn some men possess it others do not just as some men have a mathematical bent while to others figures are always a despair it is a sort of extra having nothing to do with criterions of intelligence or mental development like the repeater movement in a watch a highly educated or cultured man may lack it. The roughest possess it. Some who have never been in the woods or mountains acquire in the space of a vacation of a fair facility at picking away. And I have met a few who have spent their lives on the prospect trail and who were still and always would be as helpless as the newest city dweller. It is a gift, a talent. If you have its germ, you can become a traveler of the wide and lonely places. If you have it not, you may as well resign yourself to guides. The sense of direction, in its simplest and most elementary phase, of course, leads a man back to camp, ...or over a half-forgotten trail. The tenderfoot finds his way by little landmarks and an attempt to remember details. A woodsman adds to this the general lay of the country. The direction its streams ought to flow. The course the hills must take. The dip of strata. The growth of trees. So if the tenderfoot forgets whether he turns to right or left at a certain half-remembered burnt stub, he is lost. But if at the same point, the woodsman's memory fails him, he turns unhesitatingly to the left, because he knows by all the logic of nature's signboards that the way must be to the left, The good mountaineer follows the half-obliterated trails as much by his knowledge of where a trail must go as by the sparse indications that men have passed that way. I have travelled all day in the Sierras over apparently virgin country yet every few hours we would come on the traces of an old trail We were running in and out of it, all day, and at night we camped by it. That is, as I have said, elementary. It has to do with the country over which your woodsman has already travelled, or about which he knows something. In the last analysis, however, it means something more. The sense of direction will take a man through a country of which he knows nothing whatever he travels by the feel of it he will tell you this means that his experience subconsciously arranges certain factors from which the sixth sense we are discussing draws certain deductions a mountaineer for example recognizes the altitude by the vegetation knowing the altitude he knows also the country formation and so he can tell at once whether the canyon before him will narrow to an impassable gorge or remain open enough to admit of passage this in turn determines whether he shall choose the ravines or ridges in crossing a certain divide and exactly how he can descend on the other side the example is one of the simpler a good man thus noses his way through a difficult country with considerable accuracy where a tenderfoot would become speedily lost But if a sense of direction is the prime requisite, thoroughness presses its close. It is sometimes difficult to command the necessary patience at the end of a hard day with the almost moral certainty that the objective point is just ahead. It is easy, fatally easy, when the next dim blaze does not immediately appear To say to oneself, oh it's near enough, and to plunge ahead, and then, nine times out of ten you are in trouble, I guess this is alright, has lost many a man, and the haste too great to be sure, and then again sure, has had many fatal results. If it is a trail, then be certain you see indications before proceeding. Should they fail, then go back to the last indication and start over again. If it is new country, then pick up every consideration in your power and balance them carefully before making the smallest decision and all the time keep figuring Once having decided on a route, do not let the matter there rest. As you proceed, keep your eyes and mind busy, weighing each bit of evidence. And if you become suspicious that you are on the wrong track, turn back unhesitatingly, no matter how time presses. A recent expedition with a fatal termination illustrates the point completely. At first sight, it may seem invidious to call attention to the mistakes of a man who had laid down his life in payment for them. But it seems to me that the chief value of such sad accidents beyond the lessons of courage, endurance, comradeship, devotion and beautiful faith lies in the lesson and warning to those likely to fall into the same blunders. I knew Hubbard, both at college and later, and admire alike to him. I am sure he would be one of the first to warn others from repeating his error. The expedition of which I speak started out with the purpose of exploring Labrador. As the season is some short haste was necessary, the party proceeded to the head of a certain lake into which they had been told they would find a river flowing. They found a river, ascended it, were conquered by the extreme difficulties of the stream one of the party perished and the others came near to it. As for the facts so far, the first to occur to a man entirely accustomed to wilderness travel would be is there perhaps another stream, another river flowing into that lake. Encountering difficulties, he would become more and more uneasy as to that point until at last he would have detached a scout to make sure but mark this further the party's informants had told Hubbard that he would find the river easily navigable for 18 miles or so as a matter of fact The expedition ran into shallows and rapids within a half mile of the lake. To a woodsman, the answer would have stood out as plain as print. He would have retracted his way, explored farther, found the right river, and continued. But poor Hubbard was in a hurry, and moreover possessed optimistic temperament that so endeared him to all who knew him they must have made a mistake in the distance I guess this is alright said he and pushed on against difficulties that eventually killed him to a man accustomed to explorations such as a mistake is inconceivable Labrador is not more dangerous than other wooded northern countries. Not so dangerous as the big mountains, much safer than the desert. A wrong turn in any of these wildernesses may mean death. Forty men succumbed to the desert last summer. Do not make that wrong turn, be sure. Take nothing for granted. Either that they made a mistake in the distance, or that it's probably alright. Any of the greatest of American wilderness travellers knew this, as all wilderness travellers masked, and phrased in the epigram that has become the classic, Be sure you are right, and then go ahead, advised Daniel Boone so you do not get lost, barring accidents, you are safe enough. But to travel well, you must add to your minor affairs, the same quality, slightly diluted, perhaps, that I have endeavoured to describe above. In this application, it becomes thoroughness and smartness, A great many people object while camping to keeping things in the trim, to getting up in the morning, to moving with expedition and precision. Oh, what's the use in being so particular, they grumble. This is supposed to be a pleasure trip. Outside the fact that a certain amount of discipline brings efficiency, There is no doubt that a slack camp means trouble sooner or later. Where things are not picked up, something important will sooner or later be lost or left behind. Where the beginning of the day's journey hangs fire. Sooner or later, night will catch you in a very bad place indeed. Where men get in the habit of slouching, physically and mentally... They become in emergencies unable to summon presence of mind and incapable of swift, effective movements. The morale is low and exclusive of the fact that such things are an annoyance to the spirit. They may in some exceptional occasion give rise to serious trouble Algernon is ten minutes slow in packing his horse and Algernon gets well cursed he is hurt as to the soul and demands of himself aggrievedly how ten minutes can be valued so high it is not the ten minutes as a space of time but as a measure of incompetence This pack train is 10 minutes short of what a pack train should be, and if the leader's mind is properly constructed, he is proportionally annoyed. Although not strictly germane to a discussion of equipments, I am tempted to hold up a horrible example. One evening... We were all sitting around a big after dinner fire at the forest supervisor's summer camp in the mountains when an outfit drifted in and made camp a few hundred yards downstream. After an interval the leader of the party came over and introduced himself. He proved to be a youngish man with curly hair and regular features and a good physique, and eyes handsome but set too close together. A blue flannel shirt, whose top button was unfastened, rolled back to show his neck. A handkerchief was knotted below that. In all his external appearance, he leaned toward the foppish picturesque. This was in itself harmless enough. Shortly he began to tell us things. He confided that his chief ambition was to rope a bear. He related adventures in the more southern mountains. He stated that he intended to travel up through the minarets and over Agnews Pass and by the way of Tulum. This was to consume two weeks. Finally, he became more personal. He told us how President Roosevelt, when on his Pacific Coast tour, had spoken to him personally. When the train started, said he, I ran after it as I could with a lot of others, but I ran a lot faster and got ahead. So the president spoke directly to me, not to the crowd, but to me. He left us suitably impressed. Next morning, his camp was astir at five o'clock, as was proper considering the strenuous program he had outlined. About seven, our friend came over to get his animals which he had turned out in the supervisor's pasture overnight. Ten animals in another man's mountain pasture. He had a shooting match and talked reserve matters for just one hour and twenty minutes. Then somebody woke up. I wonder what's become of Jones. Let's go see. We went. Jones was standing dusty in the middle of the corral. In his hand, he held a short loop, not over three feet across. This he whirled forward and overhand. Occasionally, he would cast it at a horse. Of course, the outraged and astounded animal was stricken about the knees, whereupon he circulated the confines of the corral at speed and the animals at the moment our arrival Jones was bestowing attention on a dignified and gaunt mule some seventeen hands high I never saw such a giraffe two about the size of jackasses hovered near One horse's lower lip wobbled objectly below a Roman nose. We watched a few moments, then offered, mildly, to help. Jones, somewhat heated and cross, accepted. The first horse I roped, I noticed, was barefoot. So were the others. And the route was over a rough granite and snow country. Thus we performed a procession, each leading some sort of a queen thing. It was by now nearly nine o'clock. And that concludes the reading of tonight's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. And of course, if you are still awake, you're welcome to listen to one of the other episodes. Until next time, enjoy the evening. And I look forward to bringing you another story next time. Good night.